Hello and welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm reporter Adam Riley, and this week we're tackling a bit of drama that's been brewing on Beacon Hill. Recently, after Governor Charlie Baker announced $98 million worth of unilateral budget cuts, he got some sharp pushback from, among others, House Speaker Bob DeLeo, whose relationship with the governor has been remarkably cordial over the past couple of years. Peter Kadzis and I met up at WGBH News' new Boston Public Library studio and talked to Shira Schoenberg, who covers the State House for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com, and Charlie Chippio, a former denizen of the State House under ex-Governor Mitt Romney and now the head of Chippio Strategies, LLC. Our question, do the budget cuts and the response they elicited herald the arrival of a new and less harmonious era on Beacon Hill? especially heading into the presidency of Donald Trump. Take a listen. Let's go back to the State House, right? We're done here? No, I'll fly up from here. Okay, good. Excellent. Now, Charlie, how far did you have to come? From Needham, from beautiful Needham. Needham is beautiful this time of year, but Needham is always beautiful. It is. All right, so let's let's start by focusing on the particulars of what Governor Baker did a few days ago. He made some unilateral budget cuts that elicited, to my ear anyway, sharper than expected criticism from some of the people I usually think of as being de facto Baker allies. Shira, can you start off by talking us through, and you don't need to be encyclopedic here, but what were some of the things that Governor Baker cut and what kind of amounts are we talking about when it comes to these cuts? Sure. I mean, the full amount that he cut was uh, $98 million. Of that more than half, I think about $53 million came from earmarks. Um, there's also a fair amount from administrative expenses. Um, but earmarks can be really varied. I mean, he cut, you know, a couple million from substance abuse services, which caused some angst among some legislators. Um, you know, he cut a lot of local priorities for various legislators, you know, for example, money for nonprofits. He cut a million dollars from, you know, Bay State Health in western Massachusetts, which is a Western Mass hospital that's complained a lot about the unfairness of other funding formulas, Medicaid, uh, of Medicaid money that it gets. Um, so it's really a wide range of things from the environment to social services to nonprofits. Any kind of unifying theme in that wide range, or was it really a grab bag of stuff from different kinds of programs across different parts of the state? So a couple of the things that Baker liked to point out was that it was mostly earmarks, so it was kind of local priorities that legislators had stuck into the budget. A lot of these things were for programs where the money had never been released, so they were new programs. For example, a new economic development fund where the program never actually got off the ground because they were waiting for the state to actually release the money. Um, Baker said he had tried very hard not to cut programs that were already in existence, um, really to focus on things that Consumers wouldn't necessarily see the impact immediately. All right, now tell me a little bit, and then we'll get Charlie in here, a little bit about the reaction that these cuts generated. Were you surprised at the hue and cry that followed the governor's cuts? So I actually was really surprised this time. I think it's, I mean, it's very usual. Anytime there's a cut, you're going to have the organizations that get cuts yelling and screaming, and of course you saw that. But what surprised me was this seemed to be probably the strongest reaction against Baker that we'd seen from Senate President Stan Rosenberg and from House Speaker Robert DeLeo. Um, you know, the 
leaders in the Senate and the House both came out pretty quickly and said that uh, they felt the cuts were premature, that they thought their budget that they passed was balanced, and that Governor Baker shouldn't have made the cuts. And if you remember, I mean, the Democrats in the legislature have until now been really strong allies of Baker. Particularly in the House. Yes. Yeah. Charlie Chippio, were you surprised by the backlash, in particular from Speaker DeLeo? I was surprised by the backlash from Speaker DeLeo, but I think that in retrospect, which of course is always 2020, uh, I, uh, I think that uh, I think a couple things are in play there. I think one is that you know part of what Baker has done here has been really to cultivate great uh, relationships with the with the legislature. You know, I, I worked back in the day in the Romney administration, and I always thought that there could never be a governor that the legislature would dislike more than they disliked Mitt Romney. But then DeVal Patrick came, and I think he pulled it off. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so this is really a new day in terms of the kind of relationship that exists there. And I think that, you know, this was one of the times, or one of the few times when Baker, as Shira said, really sort of went in and went at some of these individuals' priorities. And I think that that probably explains why DeLeo reacted the way that he did. Um, I also think the other issue is that, look, you know, after this last election and after all the, the, um, the, uh, all the, the, the political capital that Baker invested, particularly in the charter school question, which I'm still in recovery from, uh, you know, uh, I think that he's probably viewed as being, for the first time, somewhat vulnerable. And I think that that's part of what you're seeing here as well. Does that make sense to you, Shara, as an explanation, or is Charlie missing anything? Oh, I'm sure Charlie's missing huh? something. <laughs> no, I think that does make what's a lot getting of, right and what's he getting wrong? Right? I mean, I think it does make a lot of sense that I think um, Baker has really enjoyed this kind of two-year honeymoon, yeah. but now you've seen some concerns about you know, you have unions pushing back at privatization. He lost, as you mentioned, the um, charter school ballot question, the marijuana ballot question. And I think Democrats are sensing some vulnerability. You also have a new chairman of the Democratic Party, Gus Bickford, that seems to be much more aggressive than the old chairman, Senator Thomas McGee. Mm -hmm. And I think Democrats may be starting to position themselves for 2018 and the governor's race that year. There's actually going to be a, a competitive contest in 2018? Well, we'll have to see who runs. Right, right. Peter Katz, I see you wanted to get in here. Well, <clears throat> I don't know why. I, I see three factors here. Um, the night of the cuts, I'm thinking, well, 98 million sounds like a lot of money, but then you do the math, and it's less than 1%. Now, even by my shaky math, it, it's two thousandth of a percent, I believe, that was cut. Yeah. But it's certainly less than the percent. I think the reason that it hurts so much is that um, spending in Massachusetts is so tight. There's no wiggle room in the budget, or relatively speaking, by governmental standards, there's, there's little wiggle room. I think what Baker did is he, he cut into what little wiggle room was there, and that hurt some egos. Um, you know, he cut into a lot of, you know, he, he cut into what little pork there was. Um, and I'm not to say that I, I think some of the health care spending, you know, may hurt somewhere. But, you know, um, I feel pretty strongly about those two points. The third point is debatable, but I would chalk it up to what I call the Trump factor. And um, I think ba Baker got some serious pushback from grassroots people calling his office when he didn't badmouth Bannon. 
Steve Bannon, hmm. the president elect, yeah. uh, chief policy chief advisor, chief I think policy advisor and strategist, right? yeah, senior strategist. Yeah, well, yeah. My my perhaps eccentric opinion is that Bannon is not the one to watch in the White House. It's Rance Priebus. He's the guy who I believe is really bad news. By the way, this is not a defense of Bannon. But that's neither here nor there. To say you're worse than Bannon. Well, we're talking local. What I mean is Baker's in a tough position. Yes, he's a Republican. But um, Baker's governor of Massachusetts, just as it drives me crazy when the city council passes resolutions, you know, for world peace in this, you know, I, I want to know, is my street going to get plowed? Right. Focus on local events. And I, I, I think Baker, it may be politically convenient for him as a Republican to do that, but nevertheless, I think he should focus on Massachusetts. There's a price to pay. He won a slim, he won a slim majority, and I know, just anecdotally, um, a number of Democrats I know who voted for Baker uh, you know, we're having second thoughts because Trump's in the White House. Politics is not a rational business. It's an emotional business. And I think what the Baker administration may have been doing, whether they knew it or not, and I'm not saying they did it unconsciously or they did it unconsciously, but this helps send a signal to Baker voters that Charlie Baker is about fiscal responsibility. Huh. Um, I'm not sure that this this sort of thing might not hurt him, but th that's what I see this as all about. Well, yeah, I think Peter touched on two very important points here. One is that Baker is indeed in a very tough spot. You know, he uh, you know, was one of the leaders of the Never Trump movement, uh, and now he's in a position where, particularly with, uh, uh, with the president-elect talking about this perhaps this big uh, infrastructure uh, spending program, you know, he's got to see to it that Massachusetts gets its fair share of all that money. So on one hand, he's got he's to not alienate Trump. On the other hand, you know, he's got his local uh, political concerns, which, of course, the best thing he could do would be on that front would be to alienate, alienate Trump, Trump as Trump, much right. as possible. So he's got to walk a fine line. And he's going to be asked repeatedly any time the president-elect does Every time. anything objectionable Absolutely. or tweets anything yep. head-scratching, he's going to be asked for his reaction. Absolutely, and God knows that will happen plenty. And by so, the way, can I also just add, yeah. I know I yeah, interrupted you, I have, I'm not at the State House on a daily basis, unlike Shira, uh, but I remember Governor Baker getting really angry, I thought, with me when I was asking him at a press avail to weigh in on former Governor Mitt Romney's remarkable anti-Trump speech that he yeah. gave several months back. And Governor Baker just didn't want to do well, it. I, I thought it was reasonable to press him. He got ticked you off. You really yeah, pissed no. him off. Yeah. <laughs> But I think related to what Peter said, I, I think that he has really tried to keep it local. But yeah. I think sometimes you just can't. But I think the bigger, I know we're talking politics here, but I think the, the biggest substantive issue here is that there's, there's real problems ahead. When we have a 3.3% unemployment rate and the economy uh, on the macro level is quite good, if for the second or third year in a row we're having to make emergency cuts, I think that says something very foreboding about what's going on well, with the budget. Adam, let me ask uh, uh, two guests a question here. I mean, it strikes me that Massachusetts has a spending problem, that we, we are spending at a rate that is not sustainable. It's not wildly unsustainable. It's just that, like, you, you know, we're like a, a, a college kid with a new line of credit. We just keep 
overextending it. We keep getting these little penalties, and it's like the cut of a thousand deaths. I mean, it's, it strikes me that you know, no one has the guts, although there is movement in this direction. No one seems to have the guts to propose a tax increase, but we can't sustain, it seems to me, the rate of spending we have with the tax base we have. Or am I crazy? Sure, what do you say? Think, I think, first of all, one thing you're seeing here, which I find interesting, and this might get a little wonky, but to some extent you have two very different philosophies of how to budget between the governor and the legislature. The legislature has always underfunded things like county sheriffs or snow and ice snow, or snow mass and ice, health. Always, yeah. And they'll just pass supplemental budgets mid-year to, de- to deal with those issues. Um, whereas Governor Baker, we saw even back in June when he was making his budget vetoes, he wanted to put a lot more money into some of these accounts up front so you didn't have to do the supplemental budgets this year. And now we're really seeing those two philosophies butting heads with each other. Um, and there is an argument, you know, you can you can make whether the legislature is right and maybe we should find count on more revenues or look for more money mid-year when you know how the fiscal year is going. Or you could say, as Governor Baker does, that no, we just have to fund these accounts up front and we have to find the money for them. It sounds to me like Governor Baker might have suspected that revenues were not going to be very robust this year, but, you know, who knows. Um, yeah, you know, look, I think that, you know, maybe it's a tax increase, but I think there's also, there's other stuff that needs to happen. You know, I think... For example, you know, when things, like a few years ago, when things go on the ballot, like eliminating the tax on alcohol, I mean, to, for there not to be a tax on alcohol is crazy. But, of course, anytime you give people a chance not to pay a tax, they're not going to pay a tax. And, you know, my big hobby horse is, you know, we need to be, we need to be tolling limited access highways. You know, I mean, that revenue is how, is how we can deal with, uh, with a lot of these big infrastructure needs, deal with, uh, you know, that money, there's nothing, you know, in the in, in the Bible or that uh, Moses brought down on the tablets uh, saying that, that that money has to only go for roads and bridges. You know, I think a lot of that money needs to go to the T. I mean, I think that's the logical way to fund these things. So you're talking about new tolls on highways. Like, give me an example. Well, look, I think every time you get on an unlimited access highway in a, in a metropolitan area, you should pay, whether it's a, a, a mileage fee or, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, there's a variety of ways yeah. to do it. Could, could you define limited access highway? Yeah, you know, where you, like, uh, 128, 95, you know, okay. where, where you have exits as opposed to, say, Route 9, you know. Where okay, just, you know, got it, got of, it. Yeah. And I think the big test of Peter's question is now going to come in 2018 when we see the fair share amendment, which would uh, increase taxes on um, income over a million dollars, and people are going to have a chance to weigh in on whether they think the state is spending in the, whether the state needs more revenue, whether we need to be cutting spending, increasing spending. I think that's going to be a very big test of that. Everybody talked about how this charter school thing just broke all the funding records, and the fair share amendment will obliterate the charter school spending. I, that's my prediction. Peter, I don't want to speak for you, but my hunch is that neither Shira nor Charlie maybe got to the, the core of your question about whether we have a spending problem here in Massachusetts the way you wanted them to. Am I right about that? Am I putting words in your mouth? Well, in a way, I don't know the answer to that myself. I think I like the fact that you're asking this question because I do think there is a fundamental difference in philosophy. I think the, the legislature um, is a more um, let's hope for the best and I don't mean that in a snarky way. You More know. Deval Patrick-esque? Well, that's, um, yes, to a point. But, but I, 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 I think 
DeLeo is an essentially conservative guy. Um, in, in Baker's more buttoned down, you know, as I've said on this podcast several times, you know, Charlie, just as Mayor Menino was the urban mechanic, Charlie Baker is the state's town manager. And I, I think there is a, you know, there's an honest clash in, in, in points of view here. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if it, it's productive to go beyond that. Um, I, I, I just think that I'd have more respect for the legislature if they didn't have all these, you know, we say earmarks, but, you know, this, yeah, it's just this bogus earmarks spending. I mean, we've, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, we've, we've done a few stories trying to get our heads around this, and some of the spending is so bizarre or so intensely local that it's hard to write about beyond like a you know for a, a place like GBH with a a, a wide Wider, and no. diverse audience because it's so narrow yeah. and I don't think that's what our tax dollars are supposed but to let be. But let me try to answer your question more directly. I would say that I think that we do need new revenue. I'm not sure taxes are the only way to raise it and, and, and the reason I would say that is simply because you know in the kind of sort of wonky stuff I look at you know you look at Billions of dollars of pension liability, this OPEB liability, which oh. is which is the liability for mostly for uh, retiree uh, retiree health care, state employee retiree and, and municipal employee retiree health care. You look at the maintenance backlog at the T. I mean, we are billions and billions and billions of dollars in the hole. I mean, in the top five of the 50 states in terms of debt per capita, and I just think that. You know, I, that's why I like these kind of user fee things because you know, just use the pension liability as an example. If we actually were, were, were just funding current pension costs instead of trying to constantly pay back this immense liability we've built up, that alone would free up more than a billion dollars a year in the budget. You know? and, and so I think we just need the, to, to raise the revenue in a smart way to, to try to pay down some of this stuff, which would make us run much more effectively and much more efficiently. Shira, oh, I think I stepped on you. You were going to make a point. You started opening your mouth, and then I said your name right away, right at the worst possible moment. What were you going to say? No, that's fine. I mean, I would just say I agree with you to the extent that I think there is some kind of spending problem just because if you look at the amount of one-time revenue that Massachusetts includes in this budget, which are revenues that come once, and then you're going to have to find a new source yeah. for them next year, that's a constant problem. Um, the fact that the state has been doing things like pushing expenses from one fiscal year into the next. These things all do indicate that we're spending more money than we're taking in on an annual basis, um, which I think the Baker administration has been taking steps to try to rein in, but is still um, going on. Um, but I would push back against your contention that earmarks are necessarily a bad thing or an example of too much spending, because you do have cases where legislators know better than you know, the House leadership what the priorities are for their district. So, for example, one of the earmarks that Governor Baker just cut was um, as the state's confronting this opioid epidemic, there was some money in there to put recovery coaches for um, so that people who overdose in western Massachusetts will come to a hospital and have a recovery coach in the emergency room to help them get into treatment. It's something that's going on in the eastern part of the state but hasn't yet moved to the neck of the woods where I cover in western Massachusetts. And that kind of program, I think, is something that's pushed by local legislators, but you can argue has some value, even though it's an earmark. 
No, that's, by, by the way, that, that's a, a, a good example. I'll still stand by my broad statement. But I think, in a way, this, this speaks a little bit into the, the honest differences in point of view that, yeah. that they have. Sure. All right, just to go back to the unilateral cuts themselves, Shira, tell me, or, or Charlie, one of you will probably know this. I do not. Were these cuts sprung on legislative leaders without prior knowledge, or did, for example, Speaker Bob DeLeo and Senate President Stan Rosenberg know that these cuts were coming? Do you know? I can't speak to this particular time. I do know that, obviously, Gov Governor Baker had been talking about making 9C cuts a month or two ago, uh -huh. and um, after Bob DeLeo and Stan Rosenberg pushed back, he said, okay, we'll hold off and look at this in another month or two. So they had to have known that something was coming at some point. I ask in part because my sense was that Governor Patrick took a lot of heat from legislative leaders. Yes. Charlie, as you mentioned, in large part because they felt that he yes. did certain big, big things, much bigger than this, unilaterally, without prior consultation, right. without trying to get them on and, board. And so did Governor Romney. And, you know, my time in the State House and the, the vigor with which I avoid going to the State House today uh, <laughs> is, is, uh, has probably left me a little, a little jaded, but I would say that my guess is that they knew, and not only did they know, but they probably discussed exactly what each of their reactions was going to be to it. <laughs> so. now, with that statement on the table, let me ask you both. See, I don't know what to make of this. I found it really interesting when um, Speaker DeLeo said the day before these cuts were announced that, you know, nothing is off the t When it comes to the possibility of a tax increase, nothing is off the table. Now, I found that um, interesting because it's, when you think about it, it's actually a very opaque statement. Being on the table. No, <laughs> um, no it was, a, it was a, a, a wonderful piece of legislative leadership. And by that, I mean probably a shrewd piece of sleight of hand. Because if, if there's anyone, if the governor is anti-tax increase, I think the speaker is... It's, is right in line I was going to say, coming from Speaker DeLeo, that's almost yeah. like a call to smash capitalism. Yeah. Well, I mean, almost, but what, what, but what do you both make? What, did you have any reaction when the, the, the House Speaker said, you know, nothing is off the table? I was surprised because I think it clearly leaves the door open in a way that he hasn't necessarily done in previous years. I mean, DeLeo's generally been pretty resistant to tax increases. And it sounds like while he wasn't necessarily in favor of one, he was certainly open to it. And yeah, if he I, does, it's obviously going to be a big battle between DeLeo oh. and Baker. Yeah, I was surprised too. And I think it, but I do think it speaks to what I was saying before that, you know, you know not that these decisions are always made by, on substance, but I think that when you look at what's happening here and the, the, the difficulty, even in the good times that we're having, making, making the numbers add up, I, I, I think you got to, I think we're really facing some, some real difficulties here, and I think he recognizes that. That's the second time in this conversation you've alluded to storm clouds gathering on the horizon. What do you see coming when you talk about bad times ahead? What kind of well, stuff do look, you Well, look, I'm not down? very smart. I mean, I just think oh, this. Oh, come on. I, you I wouldn't be here if you weren't one of, one of the best and brightest. <laughs> oh, so. there you go. Um, I, look, I just think that, I mean, it's just common sense to me. If we're having so much trouble balancing the budget during the good times, what's it going to be like during the next downturn? I think it's really going to be brutal. And so, 
you know, I think I think that Delio probably sees that, and I think that we've got to. You know, I don't wouldn't claim I have all the answers, but I think we've got to make some kind of accommodation for that going forward. And it's true because we also haven't completely replenished the rainy day fund. Yes, yes. oh my favorite. Fund. Yes, sorry, Tom one of my favorite. Smiling at you, right? Now. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Remind us how much was the rainy day fund depleted in recent years? Do you have a sense of? And and I'm asking you because I don't know the numbers myself. What was the the high water mark recently, and where are we at now, just roughly? I don't know if Peter so like, would have a better sense. So like of that. two and a half billion at one yeah. point. It was yeah. and for some reason in in. It's a really good question. I, I think it's like 50% empty or 50% full, although <laughs> by the time this broadcasts, you know, someone can send us angry emails saying, Kansas, as usual, you don't know what you're saying. But um, and there had been efforts. It, it had been being replenished. I mean, um, conservative Bob DeLeo was pushing somewhat like it at a better rate, but... Um, well, because in recent years, we haven't been drawing from the fund, but we also haven't been putting extra money in there. Right. Right. And on Beacon Hill, see, here's the dysfunction. On Beacon Hill, they'd pat themselves on the back saying, well, we haven't been spending the rainy day fund. That's good enough. But, again, that, you know, that means that, that, means that, the, that the in, in, with the interest, that the, this massive debt, the pension liability, the OPEB liability just keeps growing. You know? So you've got to do something to address it. So back once more to these specific cuts, what happens now? Is there any chance that they can be reversed by the legislature, or are they just a done deal? <laughs> what I thought was fascinating was when Speaker DeLeo actually told WGBH reporter Mike Dean the day after the cuts were made that he was planning on introducing a supplemental budget that could very well restore some of these $98 million. And I know from talking to advocates from various organizations, talking to some state legislators, that the advocates and legislators are going to be lobbying very hard to get some of their earmarks, some of their local priorities reintroduced when the legislature comes back in January. Here's what I think happens. I think that, that what happens is that uh, DeLeo and, and uh, Rosenberg you know, go on and on about how horrible these cuts are. And then uh, what happens is they talk about all the things they're going to restore, and then they get back, and around the middle of January they say, oh, boy, the money's not coming in. Things are worse now. And so as much as we want to restore these, we can't. Yeah, in, in, in a, a less publicized statement, uh, the governor himself, you know, responded that, look, if the money comes in, fine, we'll reverse yeah. some of the cuts. He didn't say all, I don't think. But um, um, in some ways, we'll see who's right. You, you know, we'll, we'll see after the first of the year who's making the, 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 the more accurate projection. Projecting anything is a bit of a crapshoot. We'll see who's right on the projections. All right, and then my, I think, either final or penultimate question is, a year from now, will we, if the four of us reconvene to chew the fat about uh, statehouse matters, will we remember this as the moment when this two-year era of comedy between the governor and the Senate president and the House speaker uh, sort of decisively began unraveling, or will we remember it instead as this little blip in the course of an otherwise harmonious relationship between Baker and DeLeo and Rosenberg? I would split the difference on that one. I think, I think that... Since I gave you two grotesquely caricatured choices, yes, that's probably there, a good go. tactic. Okay. Uh, I, 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 don't think, uh, I don't think that it's going to be... I think that the personal and the working relationship between those guys is going to remain good. 
I think this more is the point at which the Democrats, for the first time, see vulnerability. And now they will seek to exploit that vulnerability on a, on a political level. I think the, the, the personal relationships there that are so important will remain strong. I would actually agree with that 100 percent, I think. There Governor go. Baker and the legislative <laughs> leaders have been working well together, and you know, they're still meeting for their regular, leader, regular leadership meetings. They're still doing lunches together. I think they are going to keep that working relationship. But I also think you're right. That, look, this marks the midpoint of the election cycle. We're done with the national 2016 elections, and people are going to be turning to 2018, whether that's legislative seats or the governor's race. And just to echo a point that one of you made, it might have been Peter, it might have been someone else earlier on, I feel like in the wake of Trump's victory, you're going to see Democrats here in Massachusetts looking for an outlet for their energy and also their frustration, you know, because there's a sense of a loss of control nationally in addition to whatever the it's election... not just Democrats, let me tell you. <laughs> well, they're going to they're gonna look... They're, the, the local Democrats are going to look for a punching bag. Exactly. And, and, and I, I actually think... You know, I think at this moment in time, despite the differences in philosophy we're talking about, you've got a center-right governor, you've got a center-left Senate president, and you've got a center-center, you know, Speaker of the House. You know, by recent Massachusetts standards, this is the most statesman-like trio we've had running things. And and, um, I think they'll want to keep it that way. I'm not sure the troops below them are going to be as polite and as civic-minded as the leaders will be. Peter Ketz, I don't know if we'll edit this question out or not, but final question for you. Steve Bannon, better than Reince Priebus, go. Well, no, Steve Bannon is not the threat that Reince Priebus is. I, I think that the, um, the so-called alt-right, the, the white nationalist m- movement is a... Uh, is a blip on the radar screen. They're, they're, they're truly eccentric. Um, the Tea Party, I be- believe, is you, you know be- become part and parcel of the Republican Party, and I think Rance Priebus is a very dangerous guy. I wouldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. Anyone who saw him with um, uh, MSNBC, Chuck Todd, the, the way he shocked and jobbed and misrepresented the facts about the CIA and FBI's conclusions say, here is one dangerous man. About Russian hacking? Yeah. All right, I got I to gotta just push back momentarily. Note that it's probably easier to dismiss the quote-unquote alt-right when you're a white guy of uh, broadly Christian extraction. If you're a person of color, if you're Jewish, uh, it, it might have a, a different look and a different feel. It might have a different look and different feel, but it doesn't uh, affect how effective they are as a political force. The the cosmetics are definitely uh, very bad there. I just don't see the so-called white nationalist, the the, the white nationalist so-called alt-right as being a powerful force in in politics. They're a force and they're a fringe force. The Tea Party, in Tea Party thinking, I, I believe is a real political danger, always has been. There it is, Peter Kansas, Charlie Chippio, Shira Schoenberg. Thank you for coming in to talk, for the most part, about state budgetary and political matters. And that is going to do it for the latest episode of The Scrum. As always, thanks to our guests, Shira Schoenberg of the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com, and Charlie Chippio, head of Chippio Strategies, LLC, for joining us. 
And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find back episodes of The Scrum at blogs.wgbhnews.org slash scrum. You can also find us on iTunes and via the different podcatchers that are kicking around these days. Our producer is Jason Tereski. I'm Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thank you.